Do animals speak? Do barks, chirps, and squeaks actually have a meaning? Or is language one of the pillars of human nature and a clear distinguishing feature of our species? Tell everybody your name. Oh, she's getting ready. She's got to clear her throat. Can you tell them your name? I'm Storm. Yes, I am Storm. <laughs> say hi. Can you say hi? Hello. That's nice. That was Einstein, an African gray. Now, Einstein is a very talented parrot, but there are quite a few animal species that are capable of learning to imitate the human language, like Asian elephants, beluga whales, and harbor seals. But studies of how capable animals are at imitating human language patterns always conclude with the same thing. Some are pretty good, but they're greatly limited both by their physiology and the fact that they're just not human. These experiments, while fascinating, reveal an important bias in the way we have studied animals for centuries, through the human lens, judging their genius by human standards. More recently, scientists have taken a deeper interest in analyzing animal communication as it occurs in the wild. By giving the same weight to animal exchanges as we do to human language, they have opened up a fascinating world of complex communication through both verbal and nonverbal means. Today we'll be talking to Eva Mayer, who argues that animal communications do indeed constitute different forms of language, and that if we listen carefully, we'll discover a world buzzing with informational exchanges across the animal kingdom. Eva, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. One of the most incredible examples you bring up in your book, Animal Languages, is prairie dogs. It would appear that their squeaks and calls are actually imbued with meaningful descriptions of the world around them. Yes, I love to start with the prairie dogs because they're such a good example of how, uh, how amazing animal languages uh, are. So uh, prairie dogs, they're a species of ground squirrel. They live in, in holes under the, in, under the ground in tunnels. And uh, they uh, always have to come out because they need to eat. So they go to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, to the ends of their tunnels and then they go out. Um, but this makes them a really easy prey for predators. So th they developed a very uh, complex um, system of warning calls, alarm calls, in which they uh, tell each other about the predator that's approaching. And so they do not only mention uh, whether or not the predator is coming from the sky or coming from the land, because this is relevant. We need to know this in order uh, to know how to respond. Do you run away or do you go back into your tunnel? Um, but they also mention very specific characteristics. Um, now, a human researcher, Konsla Bochikov, um, uh, investigated uh, these uh, alarm calls and he uh, he did all of these experiments with human beings. So when a human enters the territory of the prairie dogs, they tell each other that it's a human approaching. They tell each other how tall they are, the speed with which they're approaching, the color of their t-shirt, the color of their hair. And they even mention whether or not they are carrying something like a bag or an umbrella or a gun. Um, and um, they do this in these really um, short sort of squeaking noises. 
So um, uh, for us, when we hear it, it's sort of the, the same noise repeating, um, but uh, the researchers recorded this and then uh, analyzed it digitally and they found out that there's actually a lot going on. And there's a lot we do not know about the language of the prairie dogs um, because only these alarm calls have been studied in detail, but we do know that they speak, uh, that their, their sounds are like words that form sentences and these sentences have a kind of grammar so when the position of certain sounds or words in the sentence changes um, the the meaning of the sentence changes as well so with that they can also for example make new combinations such as oval unknown predator so the, the prairie dogs also have a form of social chatter. They, they talk to each other and we don't really know a lot about that. So um, uh, th there's probably much more going on, but that's still being researched. One of the important things you mention about prairie dogs in your book is your belief that they are the rule rather than the exception. You go on to say that prairie dog language has been studied in detail and this is the reason why we have come to understand its scope and complexity. While the study of animal languages is still in its infancy among other species, there are many examples of interesting discoveries, like animals who use names for each other. Yes, that's something that's... Um, well, the thing with um, uh, studies about animal languages is that a lot of biologists only study one species of animals and then only study one specific characteristic of their language or communication. And that's why we don't know a lot about uh, many species, but names have been uh, researched. So um, uh, dolphins are a good example. They have signature whistles, um, and those are their individual sound. That's the sound that belongs to them. And when they uh, go into a new group, when they swim into a new group, they introduce themselves with their signature uh, whistle. Parrots um, are also um, uh, birds who have uh, names and uh, apparently they give their children names and they keep this name uh, for throughout their, their lives. Um, bats uh, are another uh, good example of uh, a species that has like a, a unique call that belongs to them, which functions like uh, a name. And we also know that bats like to gossip so they argue a lot and uh, when the bat that they spoke to uh, flew away you can hear the rest uh, of the bats uh, still speaking about that bat and bat sound is really interesting because um, it's very hard for us to perceive we hear some of it but most of it we don't because it's too high for us the frequency is is too high for human ears to be able to uh, hear but new digital developments have made it possible to record these sounds and to analyze them and researchers even think that bat language is probably the most complex language of mammals after human language now we always have to be very careful with these claims because people say this about this species and then that species and then that species so it's sort of a, a human thing to want to uh, to do but still it does show that uh, there's a whole world of communication and um, yeah, interaction going on beyond what we can perceive as humans. It almost makes me wonder if they have, you know, 
their own kind of stereotypical name. Exactly. And whether some names are more popular among some communities than others, you know. Yeah. Or during certain years, like for Americans in 2018, it was Emma for girls and Liam for boys. Some scientists draw the line at language. While many of the qualities and skills that once separated us from animals like emotion, tool use, and self-awareness have now been extended to the animal kingdom, language is often talked about as the last frontier, the one thing that separates us from them. So are we talking about language or just a form of communication between animals? Yeah, that's a matter of definition. And the thing is, whether or not something is language or not, is at least partly uh, a philosophical question because it's um, I mean even in in human communication and uh, language there's a wide variety uh, of um, uh, languages there are not just spoken languages but also uh, languages that are whistled um, uh, there are drum languages and um, we do not know at this moment uh, if there is uh, an animal language that is completely um, similar to human language in its complexity. What we do know is that um, many characteristics that we saw as unique for human language, such as, for example, the use of grammar or the use of recursion, which is um, uh, using a, a part of a sentence uh, again so that you can make more difficult and elaborate uh, sentences. We, we, the things that we used to think were unique to human language um, actually also show up in languages of other animals. The thing is, um, with language, for a very long time, it was simply um, stated that other animals did not have a language because language was defined as human language. And you can see that in the early animal language research, where um, researchers tried to teach non-human animals, such as non-human primates, uh, chimpanzees, uh, gorillas, um, but also even dolphins, uh, to sp speak in human language. So there were, for example, uh, researchers who raised baby chimpanzees alongside uh, their own human children uh, and tried to find out um, uh, if, if these chimpanzees were capable of speaking in human language and when that didn't really work, they moved to uh, sign language. But the, the, the basic question underlying their research was not one of wanting to find out about chimpanzees and their linguistic uh, capacities. It was really about trying to uh, find out stuff about the foundations of human language. And um, because language has for so long been equated with human language, I think we have been blind towards the, the, the diversity and, um, uh, the, and, and richness of non-human animal languages. Because the, the examples that I gave earlier were based on sound, but of course animals use many different um, uh, things to communicate with each other, not just sounds. There are animals who use colors, animals who use scents, animals who use gestures. You provide quite a few examples of complex language systems that redefine what language is, like animals that communicate not through sound, but by other means. Can you recount some examples? 
Yeah, I think that the, the Caribbean reef squid are a very good example um, because their uh, communication happens uh, through changing color patterns on their skin. And for us, that's just it's really far removed from how we communicate uh, with one another. So um, these squid have very small uh, cells on their body that can contain pigment and they can uh, make them change color by contracting and relaxing uh, the muscles that are attached to these, uh, to these cells. And with this system, they can create very complex and fast-moving color patterns. There was a, um, a video on, uh, uh, on the internet a while back about a dreaming octopus. I don't know if, if listeners maybe uh, saw this, but, but it's it, it sort of um, uh, similar to that. So they have these color patterns and, uh, and they discuss things with each other. But for human researchers, it's sometimes really hard to find out um, how to translate these messages and, and, and the things they are um, saying to one another. And there were some researchers who decided to treat these colors, these changing color patterns, as a kind of language. And um, that helped them understand the squid much better because they actually found out that within these color patterns, for example, a squid um, tells uh, another squid uh, that they like them and uh, that they would want to hook up or something. Um, uh, and then the other squid can respond with another color pattern. And so they talk back and forth. And the researchers found out that there, um, there is a grammar again to these, um, to these changing color sequences. So they have nouns and verbs and adverbs uh, with which they, um, yeah, use to to communicate. Um, another fascinating example is the language of bees. Many uh, people know that bees dance. So they, um, when they have to find a new nest, uh, different bees go out and they look for locations uh, and then when they return uh, to, to their uh, queen and they dance and um, in their dance they give different clues about the, the locations that they saw. So when the dance is longer it's a, it's a better location and this way the group sort of gets to decide what's the best um, location. Now in this dance, they make a little uh, figure eight um, and, and they sometimes use sound as well. And they also use scent. Um, and this is really interesting because scent is difficult for humans to uh, perceive. So within the sense that they use, there is also um, variation. And um, all of these things together, so the sense and the movement and the sound and um, uh, these different things uh, make up the meaning of their message. And um, many of many aspects in that actually function, yeah, similar to how our languages function. It seems like as a scientific community, people have spent too long trying to define the boundaries of language as opposed to investigating the depth of communication in the animal kingdom. Of course, there is a precedent for this. The desire to be unique has blinded investigators in the past and has skewed how scientists have designed tests 
or how they synthesized observations. But there are some observations you mention, however, that are hard to misinterpret and have undeniable parallels to the way human languages work. One of these is the discovery of dialects, or members of the same species communicating with variations depending on their region. Can you tell us about this? The study of dialects is also uh, in its infancy. So um, uh, there are things that we know, for example, great tits in Eastern Europe uh, have a different uh, dialect than the ones in Western Europe. Um, the same thing is true for whales, different um, uh, species and um, communities of whales have different dialects in different parts of the world and uh, very often they they do understand each other but um, the, the language is different similar to how this works in the human case but there's also a lot that we do not know yet so there was for example a wolf researcher who studied wolves in russia and in the united states and she noticed that there um, were huge differences in how they spoke to one another um, uh, and, and she's she she began to investigate this um, but then this also of course raises the question of um, whether or not these are dialects or maybe even completely different languages so again that's something that we need to uh, think about and we need that we need to know much more about Another interesting species you mention is whales. Now, humpback whales have been studied for their beautiful songs for quite some time now, but you bring up studies that found variations in humpback whale songs, almost like musical interpretations or remixes, almost like a form of whale culture. Could you tell us about that? There are some whales that um, uh, sing the same songs every year and um, they they might use variations but they they sort of keep returning to their own individual uh, songs or uh, or the songs of the communities but there are also um, uh, whales who develop new songs every season so um, uh, and and these whales travel and sometimes songs get picked up by another group of whales because they really like the, the tune, maybe it's catchy, we don't know. Um, but the thing is about the language of whales, and there are other species, uh, for example ravens, um, is that researchers think that it's very complex because we know that they have rich inner lives and um, uh, complex social ties because language is always uh, connected to social structures um, it's always connected to relationships because when you speak to someone because you want to uh, to say something to them you want because you, and that's that's a social act so we we assume that whales and 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 um, other species like ravens have very complex um, languages but we don't know so much about it yet we don't know so much about the meaning so um, researchers are now trying to analyze uh, the sounds digitally, but they haven't really found out much about um, how this language functions, what kind of grammar it has or what kind of structure. Um, so that's also, I think, um, 
uh, one of the reasons why we should be very humble with claims about the about hierarchies in language because we often assume that human language is sort of the best language um, uh, and, and the most complex. And of course, we can write novels and do amazing stuff with words and we have poetry. But then again, for many animal species, we don't know yet. We don't know if they have poetry and what their poetry would look like. And um, I mean, play is something that's, of course, I mean, all, all animals play and um, there's also a relationship between language and play and playful use of language. Um, but these are the kinds of questions that, that we know very, very little about. The idea that animals have complex languages could have revolutionary implications. One of the implications you argue for is inclusion of animals into our political systems. The idea that they too should have a voice in a sense or at least be considered as political subjects with their own interests. In fact, you mention acts of political resistance on the part of a number of animal species. What are some examples of this? Many animals, especially wild animals who are uh, held in captivity, resist in some sense. So there are um, uh, many stories about um, animal resistance in zoos. For example, orangutans who will try to escape they will try to get out of their enclosures and um, use all the tools they can find they also work together so when uh, one orangutan hides something uh, somewhere another one another one will pick it up later and try to use that uh, um, in order to escape their enclosures and this goes so far because they often succeed and this goes so far that it's, it's an actual problem for zoos. So orangutans are often relocated, uh, groups are split up because they, they work together in their, um, in their attempts to, uh, to get out. Another example uh, is uh, elephants. Many an elephants have, uh, have resisted um, their captivity also, um, uh, for example, in circuses where uh, they were um, used to perform tricks for uh, the audience. But there are also more, um, I mean, these are the orca whales is of course another um, uh, good example. The documentary Blackfish uh, showed how the orca whale tilicum resisted um, and uh, even killed several people. And, um, but there are also more, um, nuanced or smaller um, uh, examples of resistance. For example, farmed animals who uh, escape when they are uh, brought to the slaughterhouse or who simply refuse to do the work they are told to do. Um, and even with companion animals, um, you can see that, I mean, some species don't have the, the space to resist. So think, for example, of um, laboratories where they are kept in, in small cages. Some animals maybe only have the space to, to look the other way. And that also um, counts as an act of resistance. So what you see is that um, many animals do have 
agency in uh, in in relations of oppression, and they they show that through resisting. I wanted to pause the interview for a second to talk about a recent discovery. A couple of years ago, biologists witnessed a group of wild pigs pushing rocks towards an electric fence to test it. As soon as they pushed on the rocks and they made contact, they could hear a clicking noise. Clicking meant the wires were hot and they would back off and not cross. No sound meant it was safe to investigate what was beyond the wire. I've never liked zoos, but hearing stories like this certainly makes me think twice about how animals see their own captivity. Now back to Eva. Do you have some practical ideas for how these myriad voices, these animal perspectives, could be taken into account? That's a very big question and there's not one answer to it, but the beginning should always be listening to the other animals. Because when I, as a human being, say, oh, this is just or this is fair and this is how we should do it, then that would again repeat the idea that humans always know best. So in the human case, we have many institutions in place that um, guarantee rights and um, uh, rights are developed to, uh, they're a really good tool to secure, um, for example, political uh, participation, but also uh, to, to guarantee safety because we need to begin somewhere. You can't have a conversation with uh, someone if you're eating them later. That's not a very good start for taking someone's voice uh, into account. So, so rights are a good starting point, but um, they can only be a starting point because if we really want to consider these questions of um, sharing the planet in different ways with other animals, we need to ask them what they think about it. And this may sound utopian or uh, very strange, but people are actually trying to do this in different ways. So, um, for example, in animal research, you see that um, in the field of ethology, researchers are following the animals uh, in, in their habitats instead of transporting them uh, into a laboratory and studying them there. And in the field of uh, political philosophy, you see that people are looking at animal sanctuaries, uh, so spaces where animals can live in safety and where their agency is fostered instead of constrained, and trying to figure out new ways of living with them in, in that type of space. And it really asks for a different attitude because we are so used as humans to uh, to take the lead but the thing is in thinking about all of these questions we need to learn how to follow and some people might fear this, that this would lead to chaos or anarchy or something but one of the things that we learned from the animal language research is that uh, many animals are quite polite you know, they listen to others when they speak and they respond and um, they have social structures, maybe not the same as, as human social structures, but, um, uh, but different ones. So I think it's, it's, a, 
it's a big task, but it's also something that everyone can begin to do even now because um, we all engage with animals, even those of us who live in big cities um, might encounter pigeons on the street or rats or um, mice in their households or, or insects. And I mean, there's not one question as to how to, to, to begin to establish better relationships with them, but it, it begins with attending to them in, uh, in different ways. And, you know, all of these city animals are also just trying to make the best of it. You mentioned three really fascinating examples about places where human and animal lives intersect and how they share space and coexist. One example talks about stray dogs in Moscow. Another was about macaques in Singapore. And the third was about a dog park in L.A. Can you recount these cases for us? Uh, the stray dogs in Moscow have learned how to use the subway, so they live in the um, out uh, on the outskirts of town, and they go into town um, uh, in order to go to the market to uh, to eat, and they they learned how to use the subway and where to get off. And um, it's it's not all of the stray dogs that do it. There's there's an elite. The the researchers say that 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 figured this out. Uh, and they've become kind of, um, uh, I mean, stray animals are always contested. They're appreciated by some, but then city governments often uh, want to to get them uh, out of the city. So there are often huge campaigns to um, uh, to kill them. And uh, in in Moscow, there was also a lot of um, uh, discussion. Uh, about this, but through this behavior on the subway, where they showed first of all that they were smart enough to to learn to use the the subway, they also figured out how to use uh, traffic lights or actually or just to wait for the for the red light and then go when it's green. And they they had some other uh, things that they um, that they worked out. But but through their behavior in the in the subway, they they sort of changed negative stereotypes um, about uh, stray dogs and uh, and this changed the discussions that were um, held about them in human politics. So um, so with their behavior, they, they influenced the political decisions uh, uh, that were made. And that's a really nice example of um, how animals adapt to human culture there's more there are more nice examples there are also sometimes stories about dogs that take the bus to uh, to the park and um, yeah other ways in which uh, sometimes pitch i think pigeons in stockholm also use the subway to uh, get to uh, where they want to go so there are many more animals who who do this um, but, the, but the Moscow case uh, was interesting because it did change or at least influence uh, policy making about these dogs. Now, the story of the macaques in, uh, in Singapore is also one of these cases in which human culture and macaque culture clash. So there was a, a human um, uh, um, 
there was a, a there were human houses being built on the territory of the uh, the macaques and uh, some of the humans liked them and fed them and uh, others were scared of them but the macaques also played a role in uh, in this process they um, they came close to the humans especially because some fed them and um, there was this um, there was this, this relationship that that sort of changed and um, there were um, researchers who studied the situation of the macaques and the humans and they showed that uh, the macaques actually learned to read human faces uh, quite well and of course also their tone of voice and perhaps gestures uh, that they used and vice versa and um, because there were sometimes conflicts between the, the macaques and the humans, the researchers also suggested that um, uh, this could perhaps play a role in improving the relations. And that's a really important point, I think, because you very often find that um, there are conflicts between humans and wildlife uh, and these very often have to do with humans uh, um, encroaching onto their uh, territories and in many of these cases i mean it differs from culture to culture but um, i live in the netherlands and in the netherlands um, uh, people very often just want to kill these animals we for example had a, um, a situation with geese who um, uh, who like it over here because we have a lot of grass and um, uh, there were more and more and more geese uh, who uh, came to live here also around Schiphol airport and um, when there were too, too many geese um, uh, the, the government decided that they should be killed but this didn't work because geese fly and when the um, when the land stays the same new geese will uh, come onto that territory every year so um, researchers actually mentioned that it would be much better to try to teach them uh, to uh, yeah to, to to teach them that they are not welcome here but welcome elsewhere and that actually involves communication and not just face-to-face -face communication but also interventions in the in the landscape and there's quite a lot of knowledge about this so it's not uh, something that's um, uh, from the far future. This could be um, uh, this could be done now, and I think something similar is the case for for the macaque. So um, improving the communication, even if it is just to be able to scare someone away, uh, could help with these types of uh, conflicts. And the third case um, uh, concerning the the dog bark was a a, um, a situation in which. Um, humans with dogs um, helped to reclaim a park that was um, basically occupied by um, um, criminals and, and these kinds of people and um, the, the humans and the dogs uh, made the park a safer place and um, uh, by letting their dogs walk off leash as well and then um, there was a another conflict with humans who uh, were scared of the dogs and wanted the dogs to be on the leash. So there were sort of multiple things going on um, and uh, multiple sub 
cultures clashing in a in a in an urban area but this example shows that um, these types of these relationships um, uh, that we have with other animals can sometimes also improve um, relationships with other humans and um, uh, can make the city a better space and I think that a lot of people uh, who live with companion dogs uh, know this very well for example I have two dogs and we um, use public transport quite a bit and um, we very often talk to people sometimes uh, to, to lonely elderly people but also to uh, to others and these um, sort of small interactions uh, are are fundamental to to the to the social relations or can be fundamental to the to the social relations in a specific area so here as well we find that the, that the dogs play a role in this urban ecosystem and change things for the better it would seem that to extend the rights that individuals have uh, to animal populations would be the first and perhaps most important step for political inclusion. Certainly the case could be made that if corporations enjoy those rights, then living beings should as well, e even if they aren't human. India, for example, has gone as far as to extend the same rights that humans have to its two most important rivers, the Ganges and the Yamuna, which they consider two living beings. One of the arguments that is often brought up in terms of animal inclusion is that some claim animals don't have a moral code of their own or that they can't distinguish between right and wrong. So how could they be expected to follow our laws? What do you say to them? Well, in relation to rights, there are actually two questions that need to be separated. So rights are not just um, for those who can judge between right and wrong. For example, babies um, have rights, uh, people with um, severe mental disabilities um, have rights. Um, uh, and this is not, or, or temporary, I don't know, just rights are not a price. It's not something in the, in the case of humans that you, you need to cross a certain threshold and then you have these rights. On the contrary, these rights are precisely meant to guard the interests of those who are vulnerable in, uh, in certain situations. So that's the, the, the role of rights in our um, legal and political systems is not um, the same as as um, uh, yeah determining who's a, who's a political actor. So that's that's part of part of that question. Um, then on the other hand, there's the question: Do animals have uh, ethical, moral, uh, political systems? And there's a lot of research that shows that. Um, we did not evolve in a vacuum. So this is what evolutionary biologists uh, say and also show. Um, humans are not separate from the other animals. 
not in terms of language, not in terms of culture, not in terms of emotion, not in terms of cognition, and also not in terms of ethics and uh, morality. Other animals have social relations, they have norms in their communities. Um, but actually, the sort of the same thing applies as with the language research. Um, because for so long it was assumed that other animals did not have these types of uh, relationships with one another, there was no research about it. And um, at the moment people are investigating questions about um, normativity in, uh, in animal communities or even ethics. And, um, uh, and they are finding that many of the things that we um, uh, see as moral in humans, uh, be it uh, empathy or um, uh, even jealousy, because these, these moral uh, emotions can also be uh, negative, um, are also found in different ways in, in different uh, animal species. But, um, and the same applies to language. I mean, it, you do not need uh, an elaborate language to count um, morally. So when you think about rights, it's not as if the other animals need to prove something or need to be completely similar to humans um, uh, in, in, in every way in order to be uh, awarded rights. It's actually quite problematic to use the human being as a standard because then we are again reinforcing this hierarchy and again coming to troubling conclusions about how we want to engage with those who are different from us. So what types of rights animals should be awarded uh, precisely is also something that we need to figure out, preferably with them. I mean, we know that all animals, of course, have uh, that, that um, uh, would benefit from a right to life, uh, a right to, to freedom of movement, um, a right not to be um, uh, not to be um, held captive. All of these things, but but more specific rights, uh, for example, rights that have to do with being part of a community, such as, for example, our domesticated animals are, um, that's something that we, we need to figure out. I wanted to go back to something I mentioned earlier about how India extended human rights to rivers. You know, as, as I was reading your book, I thought about how complicated it would all get if we were to extend some of these privileges you propose for the animal kingdom to the plant kingdom. The more we study trees, for example, the more we realize they have complex communication systems, what is being called the world wood web. I mean, what if plants and flora in general are found to be conscious, intelligent, sentient beings? What then? The, the question of plants is one that is um, very, in a sense, I mean, a lot of people are studying plant communication at the moment and plant agency and uh, also ways in which humans and plants have co-evolved and um, uh, some researchers think even that plants domesticated humans um, 
And there are um, uh, many parallels between the between these studies and, and the studies of animal languages. Um, uh, but there are also many differences. So one of the parallels is that we are now taking plants more seriously and we are now taking animals more seriously. But the thing is, even when I speak about animals, uh, I speak about, and the same applies to plants, of course, I speak about such a diverse group because it includes uh, some animals who are very similar to humans, uh, such as uh, chimpanzees. There are, it includes animals who are very um, uh, close to us in social relations, such as cows or cats. Um, but it also includes animals that we might never see because they live on the bottom of the ocean or because they are simply too small to see. And um, uh, when it comes to questions about political participation, uh, rights and uh, forming communities, there are differences between all of these groups and also between animals and uh, plants. So I think that we should be curious, that curiosity is really important because it's, it's the beginning point for, for, um, for all of this towards animals and also uh, towards uh, plants. And that this research about plants also forces us um, to be more humble as humans. And some people say that the age in which we live now is called the Anthropocene, the age of the human. And um, we now are finding out that this Anthropocene has um, uh, downsides. So um, it has led the, the conditions that created the Anthropocene also created uh, climate uh, change, it also created a loss of biodiversity, it also created the um, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And the, the thing is that in order to address these challenges as humans, we cannot simply rely on technological interventions or um, new laws within the given system or or companies um, figuring out stuff for us. No, we need as humans to be um, much more aware of the fact that we are part of this living planet. And um, I think that these, these, this interest for plants um, is also part of that it also helps us see that there are other forms of life um, that um, have their own place in the, in the bigger whole uh, that we are all part of. And I mean, in the case of non-human animals, I think there's a lot of wisdom in their ways of life uh, as well. With plants, I just, I know less about it. And I also um, think that uh, some of the concepts that we use for animals do not completely apply to plants because they have no nervous system and they have, um, it, they have a different way of being in the world. But again, that difference is also something to, um, to be respectful of. Uh, the only thing is that sometimes people use the, the question of plants um, simply to sort of say, oh, but, but plants uh, grow too and, and, and plants communicate too. So, I mean, we cannot do anything about this, so we should just 
uh, keep treating animals the way that we do and and you know and keep eating them because yes plants you know that's also one of the the things and i don't think that that is the case i do think that uh, there's a moral difference between eating animals and uh, eating plants but then again that's also something that i say now in 2020 and uh, maybe in 20 years we will know much more about plants and uh, and learn that we can harm them in ways that we think are are not possible now thank you so much eva it was great talking with you thank you for the conversation and uh, thank you to all the listeners for listening eva mayer is a writer artist and philosopher from holland Her book, Animal Languages, is available from Amazon and other retailers. Though the general consensus in the scientific community is that non-human animals do not possess language, Eva argues that there is enough evidence to question this assumption. She cites studies on the syntax of prairie dogs, describing predators, the evolution of whale songs, and wolf dialects, among other examples. As a philosopher, she asks, what if these are languages? What if we have been blinded by our limited definition of language, opening the possibility to a much deeper level of communication among and between animals brings them closer to us, and by extension, raises questions about where animals fit into our social and political systems. I don't know about you, but I will never listen to the sounds of a forest or a jungle the same way again. Until next time. (music) 